0: Welcome to Last First Date Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 450 with Logan Yuri, How to Not Die Alone. Hi everybody, I'm Sandy Weiner. Welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect she deserves in life and love. If you're looking to build your confidence and show up more authentically in your life and in your love life, I wrote a book just for you. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it's filled with stories, tips, and exercises to help you show up, stand up, and speak up and step into your full value. It's available on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. This week's tip from the book on how to become a woman of value is do not settle, which is a really appropriate thing to talk about today. Um, I, I settled so many times before I did this work, and so we often settle in our love life, in our work, in many parts of our lives when we don't fully own our value. So I encourage you to look at the places where you might be selling yourself short, and take one step forward to have the life, the love that you want. Before I bring on Logan, I invite you to join my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. We are a large group that's heavily monitored, so the conversations are kind, respectful, and positive. So if you're interested in really learning how to go on Your Last First Date with positive support, join us at Your Last First Date. And now for my guest, Logan Yuri. She is a behavioral scientist who became a dating coach. She is internationally recognized as an expert on modern love. One of the most confusing things that we have today. She's the author of an amazing new book. It's an Amazon bestseller, How to Not Die Alone. And if you're watching on video, here's a copy. She is amazing. I love this book. She is the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, and she leads a research team that's dedicated to helping people find love. She studied psychology at Harvard and ran Google's behavioral science team, The Irrational Lab. She lives in the Bay Area with her husband, Scott. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here.
0: I am excited to talk to you. So let's start with um, I have so many questions for you, but let's start with what inspired you to write this book?
1: Yeah, so I've had these dueling interests for a long time. So on one side, psychology, the science of decision-making, and on the other hand, love, sex, dating, and relationships. And so from a career perspective, I really started more in the psychology department, and I applied what I knew about the field of decision-making to this team at Google that you just mentioned, the Irrational Lab. And so this was all about taking what we knew from academia, what we knew about how people make decisions, and applying it to Google products and Google marketing. And that was really fun. I got to work with one of my mentors, Dan Ariely, somebody who's written the book, Predictably Irrational, someone who I really respected. But at the same time I was doing this, I was single and I was struggling and I was on the apps and everyone around me, these very smart Googlers were struggling too. And so I tried to find ways to combine the two. And so now I've done that in a number of ways. I've done that through one-on-one dating coaching, uh, taking what I knew about decision making and helping people in their dating lives. I've taken it and applied it at the dating app Hinge, so affecting how millions of people date in the app. And now most recently, I've written the book, which is all about seeing relationships, as a series of decisions. And so if you make great decisions along the way, you propel yourself into a great relationship. If you make bad decisions, you repeat the same patterns over and over again. And so that's really what's made me so joyful and so grateful is that I feel like I've been able to combine these two interests and really give my unique perspective on dating and relationships using what I know from the science of decision-making.
0: I love it. I I so agree with you that I see so many people as a dating coach Mm -hmm. making poor decisions and not realizing like we can't see ourselves, right? It's really hard. I even see my children. I, my son got involved with somebody a couple months ago and I was like, oh my God, such a dysfunctional family she's coming from. She hasn't done any work on herself. She's, I could see her attachment still. Like I could see it all, but he had to go through it in order to see that it wasn't right for him. And it actually was great experience for him because he did the work he he used that as a catalyst to become a better dater but most people don't so let's talk a little bit about how uh the science behind dating like you know a lot of people think you either have good dating skills or you don't or love just comes to the lucky or you know it comes to those if it's meant to be you know there's so many so many beliefs about love so can this be taught and you know and how
1: Yes. So I definitely believe that love is organic. Love is natural. Love is something that just happens to you. We're born knowing how to love. Absolutely agree with that. But dating is the separate thing. Dating is partner selection. It's knowing what feels good now versus what's going to matter long term. It's understanding yourself. It's understanding that you're going to change. Understanding that somebody else is going to change. It's actually a very complicated thing. And so while love is natural, dating is a skill. And that's the whole premise of the book is that dating is something that's hard. It's relevant. Relatively new in the span of human history, it's really hard now with some of the complications of the app and paradox of choice. And that in this book, I will teach you how to make better decisions, and I will teach you to be a better dater.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the paradox of choice because that that's fascinating. And you know, I know that the apps give people tons of choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, what is the paradox of choice, and how does it apply to the dating world?
1: sure so the paradox of choice is an idea from psychologist barry schwartz and he has a book with the same name that i highly recommend and the idea here is that our natural instinct is that we want choices we're drawn to options we're drawn to freedom but What he's found is that too many choices often leaves us feeling depressed or unhappy or doubting our choices. And what happens is that when you have so many choices, you say, well, if I had made this different decision, would I be happier? Or maybe you get so overwhelmed that it leads to decision paralysis and you make no choice at all. And so applied to the dating apps, the idea here is that certain people, and I won't say that this is everyone because it depends on, you know, your, dating market, but certain people are getting so overwhelmed with likes, so overwhelmed with messages that they have a really hard time deciding who to choose, who to invest in. And sometimes they just go on a lot of first dates. They don't invest in anyone and they have a really hard time deciding how do I choose one person among the many and try to build a relationship with them.
0: Yeah, I I definitely see that a lot. And one of the things I do as a dating coach is to go on their online profiles and to help them delete a lot of messages because yeah. you, you got to clean up. There's a lot of chaos out there. Totally, and you got to be focused. Um, so, speaking of focus, you talk about the three dating tendencies. Mm-hmm. You have a quiz on your site, and I took it. I'm a maximizer. <laughs> I don't fall into the full maximizer, but I do research, and I, I you know, I know a lot. Um, and so, tell us a little bit about what the dating uh, tendencies are, and why do people need to know? their type is, what who they are.
1: Yeah. So in my work as a dating coach, pre-COVID, people would come and they would sit on my couch and they would come from all walks of life. Yet I noticed that many of them suffered from the same dating blind spots, these patterns of behavior, these ways of thinking that... We're holding them back from finding love, but importantly that they couldn't identify on their own. That's why they're these blind spots. And so I categorize them into the three dating tendencies and what each of them have in common is unrealistic expectation. So the first kind is the romanticizer. And the romanticizer has unrealistic expectations of relationships. So these are the people who love love. They believe in the soulmate. There's one person out out there for them, they are going to find them. Once they meet them, love is going to be effortless. They don't have to put effort into even finding that person because Prince Charming or Princess Ariel will, will find them. And so for them, it's all about when you're in the right relationship, it feels perfect and effortless. The second type is the maximizer, what you said you were on the quiz. And the maximizer has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so this is someone who feels like there is, um, they wanna do a complete set of research. They wanna turn over every stone. They wanna say, who's out there? I wanna pick the best one. And they believe that there's an objective right choice and that they can research their way to it. And so I've had clients who say, I like my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? And there's this idea of always the grass is always greener. The third type is the hesitator. And these are people who have unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so the hesitator is the one who says, "You know, Sandy, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds." When I have a more beautiful apartment when I get my job together, right? It's always, I am not ready to be loved yet. Love is conditional and I will be ready for someone to love me when I fix this thing about myself. And their fear is that they will put themselves out there when they're incomplete and then they'll be rejected. But what they don't understand is that they're missing out on the chance to get better at dating and they're missing out on the chance to figure out what kind of person they would like to be with long-term.
0: We get a lot of hesitators. (laughs) I would say that the majority of the people I see, they're not romanticizing love after 40 anymore or 50 or 60, they're like, love sucks. I've I've been posting in my Facebook group uh, to fill in the blank, men are blank, love is blank, relationships Mm. are blank. And it's been interesting to see what people write and um, because we don't allow all that negativity so they're trying to really make it more pc but you can see the ones who have zero trust who Mm -hmm. believe that it doesn't exist and then there are the people with the 10 pounds and the um i'm not good enough and i need i need to learn a little more read 10 more books and Mm -hmm. then maybe i'll be ready absolutely yeah so it's it's really important to recognize the blind spots Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about the elusive spark and uh, (laughs) you say F the spark and can you tell us why?
1: Yes. And also, Sandy, feel free at any moment. I'd love to hear from you. This is what my experience has been, let's say, with women over 40, or this is something that I hear about in my Facebook group or the opposite. I'm, I'm very curious to hear sort of with the demographic that you work with, if this is consistent with what you see. Sure. So, yes, I have this chapter called F the Spark that has sort of taken off as one of the more memorable parts of the book. I'm sure you experience this where you write a book on your own and then you're not sure what will resonate. And so the idea here is that I set a lot of people up on dates or dating coaching clients go on a lot of dates and they describe what sounds like a really good connection and then they say, oh, I'm not going to see her again. I just didn't feel the spark. And so I say in the book that the spark has become my nemesis because I see that people are very caught up on this idea of if it's meant to be, I'm going to feel this pang of instant chemistry. I'm going to feel fireworks. The room is going to stop. And that if they don't feel that then they don't give the person another chance and so in the book i debunk three main myths about the spark the first one is that if you don't feel the spark then it can't grow over time and we know that that's absolutely not true only 11 of couples say that they felt love at first sight and because of something called the mere exposure effect the more that we are around someone the more that we are around something the more we like it and so that's why people end up dating the person from work who they've seen around for years or the person who lives in their apartment it's just being exposed to them over time you actually develop an interest in them so yes the spark can absolutely grow over time the second one is if i feel the spark then that's a good thing and as anyone who knows attachment theory, like you and probably many of your listeners know, that's not just not the case. Sometimes we confuse anxiety for chemistry. Some people are just really sparky. And so the trick here is to understand that what you're experiencing as a spark might be something that that person gives off and not actually a dynamic that's, a, that's emerging between the two of you. And finally, the third myth is that if you feel the spark, then the relationship is viable. And that's just not the case. A lot of divorced couples had the spark. A lot of couples stay together because they had this perfect we met story. And they think, well, it's just such a magical beginning. But don't stay in the wrong relationship because you had the quote unquote right start. And so my antidote to the spark is to go after the slow burn. And that's the person who's not as charismatic, not as sparky, doesn't immediately give you that feeling, but this is the type of person who would make a great long-term partner. And so I really think that there's a trick here where if you can convince yourself to look for the slow burn, you are finding someone who other people looked over, and these are often going to make the best long-term partners.
0: I love it. And which brings me to your husband, Scott, Mm -hmm. I would love for you to share your story of how you met and how that slow burn happened
1: oh yeah absolutely so uh i met my now husband when we were in college and about seven years after that we only know that we met because we became facebook friends that day and yeah i saw him on tinder and i swiped left and i said oh this guy looks like a bro backwards hat he just you know you're you're on tinder and you're looking at a lot of profiles and i i happen to remember seeing him because we had some mutual friends but you know just said "Mm, Somebody else is for me. We met, we ended up meeting up again. We both worked at Google. We had a lunch. I said I wanted to learn this coding language. He said he would teach me. And even then, it took another year of us being friends for me to say, oh, this guy is actually a good fit for me. And I'll, I'll share with your audience that that was through the work of hiring a dating coach and it was through saying, I don't like how I feel. I don't like the way that chasing these guys and feeling anxious all the time and questioning my worth. I don't like how that feels. And so I'm going to pay someone to help me with it. And through that work, which I'm so lucky I did at that age, I was able to say, all right, I have this pattern of chasing people. I think that love equals the chase. I want to feel desired. I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel secure, but that's not how these men are making me feel. Oh.'" there is someone in my life who makes me feel that way. It's this guy at work, Scott. And so now, or, or at that moment, I was able to say, okay, how do I convert this friendship, remember the slow burn, into a relationship? And I just said something like, hey, I don't have plans on Friday night, You know, ask me out, and we started <laughs> dating. And now, what is it, six years later, we're, we're married and we're very happy. And so I absolutely think that I found the slow burn and that I found the person who made me feel the way i wanted to feel and then i feel very lucky i was able to overcome that anxious avoidant loop that feeling that love is the chase
0: so common and it's such a great story thank you and and it it took work it took Mm -hmm. that internal work because you recognized internally that you felt really crappy Mm -hmm. and i i've definitely experienced all of that anxiety that felt like like chemistry and the reason I chose my husband was because of the chemistry that I had felt for someone else that ended up not working out.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, it was like this dysregulation that I was mm-hmm. always feeling and feeling like I'll never find someone. So I chose complete safety, like complete, not not no spark, <laughs> like fun. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he was he's an interesting person. He's he's a comedian. And so I I liked that and we worked together and we wrote together and created together. But we didn't we had a good work relationship. We didn't mm-hmm. have a good love relationship. Mm. So I, I think a lot of people do the opposite. They'll go from one extreme to the other, they'll break up with somebody and go to I want someone who has a job because the last you know, they yeah. they formed the wrong conclusions, in other words, so You know, and I stayed 23 years. And I was telling you before we started that there was a sunk cost. I had kids, I had a life, I had some safety, but it didn't feel safe for me to stay anymore after a time. And I think, you know, for me, losing myself was the reason I left. I felt like I couldn't fully be me, which is really true in that relationship. So, uh, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is you should look for a partner, not a prom date. And mm-hmm. I, I love, I've actually been sharing that with clients because I think most of us look for that prom date. We look mm-hmm. for certain qualities. Mm-hmm. So, can you explain the difference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's very re- relevant to the story I just shared about kind of uh in the in the book I talk about this guy Burning Man Brian this guy I met in the desert of Nevada and we shared this amazing kiss and it was just this feeling of of the spark and so the prom date is the person who very attractive looks good in pictures would be fun to dance the night away maybe you want to sleep with them at the end of the night right what makes a good prom date but too many of us start out looking for a prom date. And then as we get older and we should make this shift towards finding somebody to be a good long-term partner, we don't make that shift. And we just keep pursuing the prom date. And so, you know, when you're 15 or 16 or 17, it's fine. You should date whoever you want because you're having a good time and you're not necessarily marrying that person. But there needs to be this mental shift where you say, I'm taking myself more seriously. I know what it takes to find and create a great relationship. And I need a partner in that. And so the life partner, that is the person who has a growth mindset, somebody who thinks that life is something where you can develop skills, you can get better, somebody who's kind, somebody who's emotionally stable, somebody who is willing to make hard decisions with you, somebody who brings out the great side of you, somebody who will sit with you in the oncology unit, all of these things that you certainly don't think about when you're choosing a prom date. And so I think at any age, it's helpful for people to say what are the traits that I'm optimizing for? What are the things that I'm rejecting people for? And are those traits of the prom date or the life partner? And it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're seeking out the prom date, it's time to change your motivation, change your priorities, and really seek out that life partner, because that is the person who's going to be there with you through the good and the bad.
0: Yeah, I wish I had that knowledge when I was choosing a husband, but I know now. And I've I've I have a client in her seventies who her whole life she picked the prom dates Mm -hmm. and they didn't they were not there for her they were not partners and she finally finally made the switch and it's been amazing. She's like, yeah, I mean, he's shorter than she thought she needed. You know, Mm -hmm. those are not qualities of character. And often we get caught up in that, like full head of hair, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, just. Silly things that don't create relationships, but you also talk about the lists people make mm-hmm. and the uh, the must-haves versus the nice-to-haves versus the. Mm-hmm. the what do you call PP? Something. PPPs, yeah yeah, P-P-P. yeah, yeah, I can go into all of that. I'm applying for a small business loan. It's just. Uh-huh. It That's so funny. So funny. So yeah, can you tell us a, a little bit about yes. the difference between those?
1: Absolutely. So one time I was at a, a networking event and this woman came up to me and I didn't know her. She was in her mid thirties and she said, I'm looking to find my husband. I'm ready. I'm very easygoing. I'm really open to anyone as long as he's not a mouth breather. And honestly, I'd never even heard the expression mouth breather. Obviously, you know, we can guess what it is. Just know somebody who breathes through their mouths, but I just couldn't believe it. And I, you know, I think it was sort of a shtick and she was trying to be funny, but it just represented to me how people confuse pet peeves for deal breakers and that they actually make poor decisions based on this. And so A PPP is a permissible pet peeve. And so a pet peeve, of course, is something that annoys you, maybe annoys you more than somebody else. Something like a person that chews with their mouth open, a mouth breather, whatever it is. But that's not a reason to reject someone. It's not a reason not to enter into a relationship with someone. And so the exercise that I have in the book is differentiate between a deal breaker, something that is truly a reason why you shouldn't be with someone. You know, if you want to have kids and they don't, or you love to... or, or, you know, you care about this religion and they don't want to have that religion. I'm sure, and we can talk about it for your clients, it's probably a little different if you're not in the kid's age or, you know, later in life, I think deal breakers do change. But for somebody with a first marriage or having kids, there's some things where it truly is a deal breaker and differentiate that from the permissible pet peeves, or what I would say is the nice to have. And so maybe you're Jewish and you'd like to marry someone Jewish, but it actually isn't the biggest deal to you and it's not a deal breaker. Or you know, you'd know you like to date someone who's over 5'10", but it doesn't actually matter to you. And so height goes from being a deal breaker to a nice to have. And so really helping people understand it's okay to have deal breakers, but they should truly be things that are in that highest category of really mattering and don't confuse other things for that because you will be rejecting a lot of great potential partners.
0: So true. Oh I think, you know, definitely as we get older and we don't have the the kids on the list. Yeah, the the list can change. But I'll Mm -hmm. tell you that when I got divorced, I was still an observant Jewish woman who was looking for an observant jewish man somebody who practiced in the same way Mm -hmm. and over the years that's become unimportant to me i've shifted i'm no Mm -hmm. longer as observant as i was you really can hone it down to what are the qualities of a person that i want to live with like Mm -hmm. what can i live with what can't i live with absolutely and i was finding that narrowing my list to that was was really it was very limiting for me And so, but for some people that is not limiting, it's exactly what they need and anything Mm. else would not work. So we really have to figure those things out for ourselves. But I think when you do this, where you feel like I had a woman who came to me and said, I need a golf partner, Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing. And I said, so that's one of your must-haves. What would happen if you married him and he could no longer play golf? Oh, I love that. Great point. It's like we don't like somebody else could be your golf partner, mm-hmm. you know, and and we don't realize that your partner is not everything. Totally, I think that's also something that people really confuse that the partner has to be their best friend, they have to do all the same activities, have the exact same interests, the same everything and worldview is super important how we see the world. Um, to me it's one of the most important qualities in a person if you see the world very differently it's going to be hard to really connect uh, i'm curious what you think about that
1: yeah i mean i absolutely am in agreement with what you just said and so in the book i talk about Um, some of the things that matter more and less than people think for long-term relationship success. And in the category of matter less than people think are similar personalities and similar hobbies. And so I have a couple examples of people who have come to me and say, you know, I'm a big party person. I love nothing more than coming home at three in the morning. I throw parties. I'm so extroverted. And my girlfriend's more of a homebody. Don't you think I should find someone who's more like me? And I say, no, you're wait, basically too much as it is, two of you in a relationship would be way too much. And she really compliments you. And it seems to be working well. And people think, oh, you know, I need someone who's the same as me. And that's not true. And the same thing is true with hobbies. Look, if you are an Olympic athlete and you're spending 12 hours a day at the pool, that's one thing, but most of us, that is not our lifestyles and our hobbies don't define us. And so, you know, if you love wine and I don't, as long as I give you the space to explore your love of wine and I don't roll my eyes and say drinking again, you know, why are you spending so much money on wine? As long as I give you that space without resentment, it's fine for us to have different hobbies. And there's this idea of the other significant other, and this, it's not a sexual thing. It's people in our lives who fill different roles. And so for that client of yours, you could say, whether your partner loves golf now or loves golf, In the future, it doesn't matter. You can have a friend who is your golf partner. There are other things that are critical that you need to get from your romantic relationship, but you can outsource a lot of these hobbies, interests, opera, golfing, art, whatever it is to other people. And that's actually proven scientifically to create better relationships, because if you actually go to your partner for the roles that they want to and can fulfill, and you go to other people for the other ones, you're putting less pressure on your relationship and it leads to a better community feel and
0: just to a better partnership. I love that term, the other significant mm-hmm. other.
1: OSOs, yeah. Yeah,
0: that's great. It's like your work wife and your work husband. Absolutely, your, that's the yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. So many questions and so <laughs> I could talk to you for 10 hours. Let's, let's talk about um, what are the top mistakes? I mean, we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. of them, but if you were to narrow it down to the biggest mistakes you see people making, what are they?
1: Yeah. So when it comes to the biggest mistakes I see people making, it really goes back to those three dating tendencies, the dating blind spots, because I have people who come and they they talk to me and they say, I go on 30 to 50 first dates a year. I'm putting in the effort. I've been doing this for years and it doesn't work out. And so for that person, they're showing up and they just think, okay, maybe it's date 222 where the magic person walks in my life. but. When I have that conversation with them, I say, you're obviously doing something that isn't setting you up for success. And like, yes, effort matters, but it's not just effort. It's also mindset. And so for anyone out there who's saying I'm putting in the work, I'm in your Facebook group, I read the book, I'm on the apps, it's not working. What are the patterns of behavior that are holding you back? And so I do have this quiz on my website about three dating tendencies, but honestly, sit your best friend down and say, I talk to you after every date. I'm giving you the space. What do you think I'm doing wrong? And let your best friend who probably has good insight into your mind say, Hey, I think you're not picky enough. You're just saying yes to anyone. You're going out with these people that don't take themselves seriously. You're not taking yourself seriously. You need to go on fewer, better dates with people who are actually on your level. Or maybe they say you're way too picky. You rejected that guy because he split the bill with you. Who knows what his financial situation is maybe he's just you know maybe he's supporting his mother and his kids and whoever whatever else and just really take the time to say effort is one thing but what are the patterns of behavior that you're having trouble identifying that are holding you back and i think really that self-audit that intentionality around who you are what you want how you're showing up that's really what helps people make the shift from 30 to 50 first dates in a year and no relationship to wow i'm really Finding connection and relationships with more people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember a woman who came to me many years ago. She was like maybe 30 and really wanted to get married and went on like 200 dates the the year before. And she was like, Everybody tells me I'm too picky. And I said, You're not picky enough. It's exactly what you said. It was Mm -hmm. like so obvious. She was about to get on a bus to go from New York to Baltimore for a mm-hmm. second date with a guy she didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's a lot of effort to put mm-hmm. in with a guy you didn't like, because maybe he will become this, the right person. But you talk, you talk about second dates and that's how a true. lot of people don't go on second dates. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy in the dating coaching world about, you know, go on five dates with mm-hmm. every man and you'll know. So talk a little bit about the second date theory sure. that you have.
1: And, you know, I, am sure you found this from writing a book, but you write a book and you have these disparate ideas and then you start having conversations. You're like, oh, I actually have these themes that are in every chapter with different names. And so the theme that really has emerged through these conversations is when I say go for the life partner, not the prom date, that's also saying go for the slow burn and not the spark. And it's also busting the myths of the spark. And it's also go on the second date. These are all the same idea, which is essentially, if you're looking for the sparky prom date then you are overlooking people who could make great long-term partners and a good strategy for finding the slow burn is to go on the second date and that's because a lot of people are not themselves on a first date it takes them time to open up they're in their heads they're anxious they're wondering how they're showing up they're shy and they're more introverted and we live in a society that really prizes charm and prizes extroversion and if you think about pandemic dating with a lot of video dates it's even harder people are really on edge right now this is a really anxiety provoking time and dating is anxiety provoking and so my suggestion in the book is that if after every first date you say uh did i like him was he good enough for me all of these questions that are really putting you in the evaluative mindset you're not having an experience you're not having fun and you're going to write off a lot of great people if you make a rule of thumb for yourself that you go on the second date you're going to show up differently on the first date You're going to be more relaxed, having a better time, and you're going to find people who other people didn't give the second date to, but who would make great long-term partners. And so, of course, there's exceptions, and this is an art and a science, but I've been getting emails from people not who say, oh, this is so helpful, I've found the slow burn, but people who say, I'm the slow burn, and I wish people would give me more second dates, and I think I'm going to be more successful because more people will understand that I just take time to really show up as I am.
0: Yeah, that's and, and I think people need to stop looking for the for that spark and uh and go on a second date with people who didn't repulse them, you know, didn't make mm-hmm. them want to never speak to them again like a date I had over the weekend. Um there are certain cases where there's absolutely no way, but if there is a way, then yeah. explore and You know, and I want to say to all the introverts, because I'm an introvert who learned how to speak up on dates, is that you can come prepared for dating by sharing a little bit more about yourself. Mm -hmm. It's if you're an onion that takes two years to peel, Mm -hmm. then you're going to really struggle with dating because dating really is about a lot of first impressions. So for the people who are the slow burn, there are ways that we can show up differently and um and and in that vein i would love for you to share as our final question what what are some ways to make dating more fun because people often look at it as drudgery and an interview process so yeah
1: yeah great question well dating is work but it shouldn't feel like what you do at work and this is a common mistake that I see people make and they show up and they're wearing the hat of a job interviewer and they have their job requirements next to them. They have the checklist and they're checking off, you know, does this person have a graduate degree? Is this person a good saver? And they're basically just interviewing somebody for the role of spouse. And it's not fun. It's not something that leads to connection or desire. It's it's very, it's very dry. And so as, as hard as it is, you know, year six, year 10, whatever it is for people of being single and going out there, you are going to get into a relationship. You are gonna have a date that leads to connection if you can actually inject fun into the date. And so that might mean that you go on fewer dates, but in each of the dates, you think of an element of play. And so my friend, Kristen Berman, she's a behavioral scientist who I've worked with for a long time. She has this idea of what she calls press play mode. And that's that if I say to you, Sandy, you know, Uh, how did you wind up living in Connecticut? You just press play in your brain and you give the answer that you've given a thousand times and you're not with me. You're not connecting the dots. You're not having an experience. You're just repeating a line. But if I say to you something like, what is something that you thought was true at 20 that you've since realized is not true? Maybe no one's ever asked you that question. You're actually in the moment with me and you're having an experience. And so how can you have questions that are not small talk? How can you go to a park and pet a bunch of dogs? How can you go on a dumpling tour of your city? How can you do things that are actually fun, novel? Even if it's playing an online game with somebody that you're doing a virtual date with, you want to make sure that each date feels different, that you're having an experience. And if it feels like an interview and you're just interrogating each other, nobody is having fun in that. And that's not what leads to connection. And so if you go on 30 to 50 first dates a year that feel like job interview, the issue is not going on more dates, it's changing the dates themselves.
0: I, I have seen so many women who just, they're so dry and mm-hmm. it's, there's no attraction in, mm-hmm. in bringing your intellectual self without bringing play and fun. Totally. One of my favorite dates was sushi and go karting. Mm, it was so fun it created a lot of spark and a lot of you know just connection and excitement and we also had a lot to talk about because we were in similar professions so you know it's just do something fun and it scared me a little bit too which also makes it exciting because I had never been on a go-kart um Logan I really love talking to you this has just been so amazing Uh, tell our audience how they can find you
1: Yes, well, first of all, if anyone was interested in what we talked about today, they can pick up my book, How to Not Die Alone. They can also listen to the audible version if people are interested in working with me or taking my quiz, they can go to my website, loganyuri.com. And then I also post a lot of dating and relationship content on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at Yuri.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Get the book, everybody. It will change your life. And uh, if you love our show, please rate and review us. It really helps our show grow even bigger. And uh, we hope you go on your last first date very soon.